Hello dudes, dudettes, duders, and everyone in between, and welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. I'm your host, Jesse Kester, and I am thrilled to welcome you to our newest mini new maxi-series. What does that even mean, a maxi-series? Well, you know what we usually do on the Fishbowl. We do the four-episode mini-series, and then we do a poke episode in between those four parters to give you a break from the longer format. Well, now we're giving you a break from the shorter format by giving you an extra longer, deeper dive into our topic in this series. And that topic is drumroll, drumroll. Ah, I still haven't gotten the drummer in yet. That series is Little Tokyo. How did this maxi series come to be, you ask Thank you for asking hypothetical you. I appreciate it because it segues perfectly into the next thing that I want to talk about, which is the answer to that question. We were approached by the Little Tokyo Service Center to do a pop-up podcast studio. First, big shout out to Mariko Lockridge over at Little Tokyo Service Center for initiating this conversation. You know me, I succumb very easily to the wiles of flattery, and I found this invitation to be bonkers flattering, and I immediately said, yes, 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 what can we do? How can we make this of incredibly high value to you and the community that you're working in and the team that you work with? What can we be doing to to help build Little Tokyo up a little bit? And what we settled on was kind of an oral history with an oral present and an oral future. So what, what, what does that mean? That's, get your minds out of the gutter, all of you. I know what you're thinking, and it's not that at all. The oral history, we talked to some historians who grew up uh, in the Little Tokyo community and have had their eye on how Little Tokyo has grown over the decades. The oral present, we talked to local community organizers. We talked to journalists. And we got an idea of where Little Tokyo is at right now, what challenges it faces. And finally, we got an oral future, and that is in the form of interviews with entrepreneurs, people who are building new businesses in Little Tokyo. Of course, we got a a legacy business. That's what we called it. We got a legacy business in there as well. And that kind of bridges the gap between past, present, and future, and that's a very, very special episode for reasons that I'm not going to betray on this intro. Just look forward to it. You'll know when it happens because I'll be happier than you've ever known me to be. Just a little bit of a tease. What's first is the next question I hope that hypothetical you will ask, and it seems like you already did. First up is Mariko Lockridge, the woman who initiated this whole project. So that's what this episode is, and it would behoove me to get out of the way of my own program and let you listen to this interview with the one, the only, the illustrious, you know her, I love her, we all are thrilled to welcome her to the program, Mariko Lockridge. Drops. Morpheus, Morpheus is, is fighting, fighting Neo. Neo. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. I am, always have been, and always will be your host, Jesse Kester. Today we are joined by the one, the only, the illustrious. 
Mariko Lockridge. Welcome to the party, Mariko. How have you been? I am so ramped up with this music in my life. Doesn't head it get right you amped now? AF? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Woo! This is, I, I'm having not deja vu, but let's just call it deja vu. Uh huh. I feel like this is not our first time around on this rodeo of, of and no, Morpheus is done fighting I feel like Neo. We've been here before, but yes. I feel like your setup was not this intense the last no, time. No, <laughs> it was not. It was much more, much more subtle, uh, as was the intro music, as was every aspect of the production. But um, yes, it was. So we were in a very, very crowded room as well. It was, it was a tight fit. Oh yeah, AKA my kitchen. Yes. <laughs> thank you for first of all for before anything else. <laughs> thank you for inviting me out here. This is such a joy to be down in Little Tokyo Yay! and uh, and being in the orbit of of everything that you've been working on. I. Uh, okay, we got to back up, but before we back up, we got to do five and five. Okay. What is five and five, you ask? You yes. may. Go ahead. What is five and five, I ask? I'm only happy to answer. I'm going to ask you five <laughs> questions. You're only going to have one minute to answer each one. Mm-hmm. Five questions in five minutes. It's five and five. Welcome to the fishbowl. Okay, cool. That sounds you, very exhilarating. It is. It is. And then afterwards, we will mellow out a little bit. You will have beeps to let you know that your time is up. And then when your time is up, you know, we might use this on Schminstagrams. So that's why it's a minute um, and you're going to get cut off. Even if you keep talking, you're cut off after that. So are you ready? I am ready. Are you willing? Okay. Ready. Willing. Go. Okay. No Abel. (laughs) Abel's out out of the equation. Here we go. Number one. You hear the beeps? I do hear the beeps. Question number one. Where did you grow up and how did that inform your adulthood? Oh, okay. I was born in Buffalo, New York. I moved to Japan when I was six months old, lived with my grandparents, then back to America when I was eight, and then lived in Buffalo, then moved back to Japan when I was 15, and then moved back to America two years ago. I will not say at what age. So I've lived mm-hmm. uh, around the world, really. Um, I like to tell people that I'm like Carmen San Diego. You don't ever quite know where I am. <laughs> Have you stolen the Grand Canyon? You know what? It's on my bucket list. You got it. You're not. You haven't reached Carmen status until you until you make off with with the Grand Canyon. Yeah, some kind of uh, National Geographic. <laughs> Natural wonder of some kind. Where do you where where were you feeling at home? Like eight is a pretty strange age to move country. Fifteen is another strange age to move mm, country. Yeah. Where did you feel like yourself, if anywhere, but at that point? Um, I'm not sure if any teenager oh. feels like themselves. I would love to hear more about that, but there's no time. We gotta move on. <laughs> Question number two: What is the must-engage media? The movie, the book, the album that opened your brain up to the universe, something that everybody should should take a look at? Oh, easy question. Jimmy Stewart's It's a Wonderful Life. That is my all-time favorite film. I watch it every year. I won't let myself watch it like every day. It's mm-hmm. like something I, I look forward to all year long to watch it on Christmas. I just think that that film, even though it was made such a long time ago, there are, every time I see it, I find a new message, a new theme that's so relevant to today, yesterday, the future. Um, and I just never stop being amazed at how much more positive I feel about life after I watch it. I'm like, it is a wonderful life. We can do this. Exactly. So I love, yeah, and I just love Jimmy Stewart in general. Okay. He's one of my favorite actors of all time. So um, I worked on James Stewart Avenue when I worked over on the NBC Universal lot. And that was one of like actually deciding factors for me to take that job. <laughs> Time's up. Okay. I'm sorry. I'd love, I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> Question number three, uh, what brings you the most joy in this world? 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, it sounds really corny, but um, seeing my boyfriend smile when he's happy, I'm happy. And I wish I had like a deeper, like <laughs> I've solved poverty or saved like many human lives, but it's really simple. When he's happy, I'm happy. So, um, yeah, that's really it. <laughs> is, that, is that worth apologizing for? Like if you can improve one person's day. That's true. Is that really such a lame achievement? That's true. Wait That's a minute. True. How often do you make him smile? Is it like once a year or is it regular? No. Um, yeah, I would say it's definitely at least once a day or at least I try to. I think also like I used to try to work with such large groups of people at the time. Mm-hmm. And then when I was just like, let me just focus on like really taking care of one person in my life. It's amazing how all the other stuff, it's easier to prioritize your priorities when you have one priority. So many follow-up questions. Unfortunately, (laughs) we're doing five and five. (laughs) Question number four, what gets under your skin? Oh my gosh. I am such an easily irritated human being. So there's like a million, which is horrible of me. Um, But I think the biggest one is just like um, emails that are written without emojis or exclamation marks. Like I get you like it without emojis? With. You prefer so, okay. You I prefer, prefer it with. Without. So I get irritated when Wait, people you prefer don't. It with. Yes. Okay. I get irritated when people don't have emojis or smiley faces or LOLs because oh my God. I feel like we live in such a unless I know the person really well, in which case I know what tone they're speaking in. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like. I'm more likely to get irritated by someone by making a lot of assumptions about what their tone is in an email because I've never met them. And then they're, most people are careless when they write emails now, not to like read it over four times to make sure that the email is like carefully crafted in a way that's not offending or over assuming anything on the other side. I'd love to know more, but <laughs> unfortunately, we are going into question number five. Uh, what is the best advice you've received and what is the best advice that comes out of your own brain? It's a two-parter. The best advice that I've received is, you know, it's it's at the end of the day, I think that a lot of the things that my parents told me when I was a kid, I have totally realized the older I get, like how smart they were. (laughs) I'm just like, man, I was such a difficult teenager. Why did I not listen more? But um, I think my mom just saying like, Eight hours of sleep a day, three square meals a day, like healthy life balance. I like. You're, I really feel like that's probably the best advice someone could give someone. And I don't know. To this day, I still struggle with like a basic mm-hmm. feeding and and, and resting oneself. Um, the best advice I can advise to give to other people is: you don't have to be a millionaire to invest in someone else's dream. I always tell people that anyone can be an angel investor, even with a dollar or a minute of your time. Done. Nice. <laughs> well said. I feel like uh, you have practice saying that. <laughs> All right, you have successfully completed five and five. Do you want the celebration? Oh my gosh, yes. Is there like a... There is. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! Is there like a way for you to insert like cheering into this interview? There's always ways for me to insert something. Uh, Okay. Hold on, here we go. You're getting a thunderclap. Because that's all I've got handy. I want like cheers and like people being like, whoa, the crowd goes wild, go! Is that working? Is that doing it? Is that enough? No, it just mostly feels like people aren't listening to me. (laughs) Okay, enough of my drops. That was for you, Selena. My little sister loves it when I do drops. We can drop one more in there. 
All right, we're done with drops for a minute. <laughs> let's slow things down. Let's back things up. First of all, anytime I email you, I see you as such a consummate professional that I am uh, I am petrified of including any smileys or exclamation marks anywhere <laughs> in the emails. And now I'm thinking I need to re reevaluate my entire approach to to emailing you. Um. Yeah. You know, this was never such a thing for me before, but I because I used to be like not very um, tech savvy. Like even though I've worked mostly in television, I've always been like an in real life kind of personality mm -hmm. or, you know, cause I worked so much heavily with uh, social media that it's like via DM, which is its own kind of Oh, that's a whole nother language. Yeah. Um, but then with emails, I've just realized that you'll have people behaving or trying to speak in a formal way, but they've never really been trained, especially in English. In Japanese, it's very clear cut. There are certain ways to speak in English or Japanese or write in Japanese that are formal. Whereas in English, there isn't any kind of rules of formality. So people mm -hmm. who may not have a lot of professional experience will be trying to write messages in a formal way, but just come off as condescending yep, 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 or yep, petty. Yep, yep. And you're just like, oh. And then I'll deal with high-level execs who will like write in like all exclamation marks and, you know, large, uh, what is it, omoji, um, uppercase. Yeah, yep. And he's like... But it's it's like their personality shines through, and then yep. I I always feel like oh we've like every email is starting off in like an energetic positive note. Um, I think also one of the things that as I'm involved in more and more projects, and I've you know interacted with a lot of people, some people who are very good at writing emails, and some who are not. That the people who are the good at writing messages, they always start with like they either like inquire like how are you doing, or I saw you here, or, I noticed you were doing this like personalize it and then they'll follow up with a compliment and then it'll follow up with the ask or the constructive criticism where I have a lot of other people who the emails like are always just like hey you didn't do this hey and it gets to the point where you're like traumatized like I don't yeah, want to open yeah. up emails from this person anymore because all it's going to do is like put a dip into my yep, day yep, yep. whereas compared to like like say James who you'll be interviewing later um, the owner of Cafe Dulce like I'm never scared to open a message from him because I know it's always going to be like lol or hey like okay it's like happy face and then the ask. And so I'm always like happy to respond or do something for him or his team. <laughs> do you remember last week you were, uh, it was maybe on WhatsApp, you were like, so I got your checks ready for you. All I need is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then the next message was like, and I need these revisions. Cause like you had me once you mentioned the checks, you knew I'd respond to that. <laughs> I know you can always lead yeah. with money. Like yep, I'm paying yep. you. <laughs> and by the way, could you also do yep. this so I can uh, feel so that the payments are justified. Yep, yep. And I was wow. like, she knows I'm looking at WhatsApp right now. She yeah. knows there's no way for me to pretend <laughs> that I didn't get this Last message. Last seen at 1133 yeah, yeah, a.m. Yeah. It's now 1134. Yep, <laughs> no yep. excuses. And I was like, ah, oh, she's a professional. She knows exactly what she's doing. <laughs> no, because the other thing is too, is like having worked as a freelancer for a long time and like mm -hmm. chasing down money, you know, you've realized that some people are like actively avoiding you because you're asking them for something that's either they're having a hard time taking care of or something and then you just want them to communicate with you why it is they can't seem to cooperate with the request but mm -hmm. just have like a human conversation but people yeah. now are so used to being like yelled at or criticized or being like cyber bullied on Facebook when they post up an opinion that people are almost like just avoid it so it's like how can I skip that whole very um 
kind of unnecessary, well, not, now currently necessary level of There it steps. is. Sorry. We, no, we always wait for that one. In every episode, we have at least one. Thank you for, for front-loading it. Usually, I have to wait the whole thing. To... Before I hit stuff at the table. Yes. Um, but yeah, so I think that's something that... Uh, it's just hard, you know, like, and then you don't know where someone's day is going. Like my day might've started off bad. So everything I read is already gonna be like in a negative tone. <laughs> let's, 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 uh, stop talking abstract. Let's talk direct. How could I be improving my email communications? I think there's the obvious one. Sometimes I miss an email mm. or it goes three to five days without being, without being responded. So besides that, what do you notice? What, what red flags are you seeing from my behavior? Okay. Um, so one thing, so one of the people who actually taught me a lot about emails, well, two people, one is Sean Wong, who I serve with on the Asian American Journalists Association, LA chapter board. And the other one is Scott Oshima who's a project manager at Sustainable Little Tokyo in Little, in, in Little Tokyo. They are both like masters of project management and emails. Like mm-hmm. not only are their emails like super easy to follow, I actually volu- I will actively choose to be on their teams because I know the communication will be so clear. So one thing I've noticed with them is when um, the, it's like a really complicated project, they mm-hmm. will start off with like objective bullet points and then asks. And so it's very clear, like, I know what we're going to be, what, what, what the project's about. Because I might be working on multiple projects with them, or I might be working on multiple projects all with different team members. And he's just clarifying for whoever's on that email thread, like, hey, this is about the blah, blah, blah. Pro- this is about, I'll be, I'll be more specific. This is about the Bokashi composting project. We're having our next meeting on this day. Um, these are the things that we'll be covering. Could anyone please volunteer for these following days where we're short on volunteers? Yeah. And it's so clear. Yep, and yep, then yep. I'm like, I read it. I'm like, okay, I know exactly what this email's about. I know what are the main focus points and I know what this person needs for me. And so it's easy for me to respond. Whereas sometimes like there are days where I get like literally hundreds of emails and I want to be helpful, but then I don't really know what someone needs or wants for me. Yeah, and I'd rather yeah. them be direct and clear than trying to be polite and me just being like lost. Yeah. 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 Um, like one of the things that's troublesome for me these days is like, I get a lot of requests for meetings, which is like wonderful because I used to not get that many requests for meetings. But now I'm like, I want, I want to be prepared when I come to the meeting because I don't want to waste someone's time. So if they can let me know clearly before the meeting, like, what do you need from me? Um, then I can come prepared to that meeting or I can be like, hey, you know what? It would make more sense for me to meet because I know my own schedule. They don't know my schedule. Yeah. It would make more sense for me to meet you on this day because I'll have met with this person the previous day. So I'll have better answers for you um, compared to like someone sent me an email like, hey, can you meet up on like next Tuesday to talk about uh, a website I'm working on? And I'm like... <laughs> I'd be happy to meet up with you, but what's the website about? What yeah, do you need yeah, from yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, and then, um, what and then, stage are we at? Are you exactly. launching in a week or are you just, uh, yeah, going to start a whole new business exactly, a year from now? Exactly. And I yeah. think for me, um, one of the things where this is for the best or the worst, I'm all about efficiency. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just trying to be as efficient as possible and help as many people as possible. And the only way to do that is making our road plan as clear as we can. Let's back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I feel like we didn't get to know who you are and how you grew into be the, the, the wonderful, fabulous person that you are. <laughs> I don't know. I'm still working on fabulous. I'll, I'll, I'll take the wonderful. That, okay. <laughs> no, I, 
I'm right there with you. I'm like, uh, after getting to LA, I'm like, yeah, I got to figure out how to be fabulous too. This is, I'm coming up short in my gray button downs and flannels. I and know. Like, I'm fa- like fabulous like, is a part of the equation here. Yeah, no, fabulous is definitely something you can learn from LA. I thought Tokyo did fabulous. And I was like, no, Tokyo does a lot of things well. Fabulous is, I think, was... It in- does fashionable, but not like fabulous. Yeah. Like when, <laughs> when Tracy Ishigo walks in the room, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what we're doing now. Yeah. <laughs> She's fabulous. Yes. Like, I mean, her aura is fabulous. Like, she has like a smile that you're just like, oh, God, I want to be around you. <laughs> yes. But uh, let's let's back up and figure out who you are. What was the, why the move at eight and then the other move at 15? What... And then the oh. other move at six months old, like what's what's going on that you're ping ponging so much in so, the world? Um, yeah, so what's interesting, so my mom is Japanese and my dad is American. And when they married, my parents were like dirt poor. Uh, mm-hmm. My dad was starting to launch his own business. He's an entrepreneur. And so both my parents were basically working by the time I was born. And uh, so they um, ended up basically sending me to stay with relatives in Japan who could take care of me while they were just like trying to pay the bills. Um, And so I got to grow up in, I have no complaints, like I grew up in the most loving environment everywhere, like literally just taken care of by different grandparents or aunts Mm -hmm. and uncles basically until the age of like six. Um, By that point, my dad's businesses started to like stable out. Also, my grandfather and grandmother, my grandmother on my dad's side had passed away. My grandfather was um, pretty ill. And so they were planning to move into a house where they could take care of my grandfather um, as he was sick uh, and a passing away before they moved. But um, so that was the reason. It was kind of like my parents had a kid and we're still <laughs> trying to like figure out how to make some of their dreams work. Um, and they mm-hmm. luckily had the family support system to, to take care of them. Um, 15 was almost like the reverse. By the time I was 15, my dad was pretty successful. I think by most, uh, entrepreneurial standards, like he had a, you know, close to like 130, 40 employees. He had his That's own manufacturing. Good. Yeah. You know, go from two in someone's basement to your own properties is I think, yeah, any entrepreneur would be happy with that. Um, and then by that point, I think my mom was a little bit dismayed at how un-American her kids were, <laughs> or how un-Japanese her kids yeah, were. Yeah, yeah, um, Not how American. We, like we, gotta, we gotta get some sense And installed. then she was like, I'm taking them to Japan. They're gonna go to school there. And my sister and I were like, okay. And my dad's like, sure. He got like a place, because at that point, you know, he could afford it now. Yeah, like, he could yeah, be like, yeah. yeah we, can ha- we have a home. We can afford a place in Japan. Um, and then so basically, uh, I moved to Japan and I went to high school um, in Japan, and then I really liked it, so I stayed. What and did you like about it? What what spoke to you? Um, I don't know. I think I grew up in Buffalo, which is its own kind of culture. It's you know uh, upstate New York. It's mm-hmm. a very blue collar, um, middle class, all Americana kind of city. Yep. Um, I always felt really out of place. And then when I moved to Tokyo, I lived in a really domestic area, and I went to a pretty low level high school, but. Um, People were very curious about me, and for the first time, people like I couldn't communicate at the time, but people like tried really hard to like learn from me, and I think mm-hmm. that was a very empowering kind of experience, um, and uh, I enjoyed that. And from there, um, I started kind of like meeting different people, and I think just the timing of serendipity just kind of all worked out for okay. me. Yeah. 
And you got that Japanese sense I downloaded so. into your head? I think so. I, my mom, I still remember to this day. Were you really like, that, like, American? Were you that unruly? What was... No, well, or was your mom point, just... My sister and I, um, we had, like, basically stopped studying Japanese. We couldn't uh, okay. speak it at all. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you know, and we at were, eight, you were, you were killing it, probably. Yeah, by, at eight, I was definitely bilingual. Between eight and 15, kind of lost it. Yeah, Like, of most course. kids go to Japanese morning school. Like, if in L.A., most of the Japanese kids I meet, they speak... Japanese-American kids, I meet a lot of them speak Japanese pretty fluently. Yeah. But they also grow up in communities with a lot of Japanese speakers. Where I'm yep. Buffalo. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. like you're just trying really – like you're a teenager. You're awkward. You're like trying to fit in. You don't yeah. want to fit out. You're not any- worried about spending two nights a week at, at language school exactly. or a conversation um, circle. S- exactly. So – and there's not people around you using it. So you're like, why do I need yep, this? Yep, 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 um, yep. So, yeah. So then when I went to America – or I went to Japan and I – uh, I still remember, so um, really quick story. I landed at Narita Airport with my mom and my sister, and we were like pushing the luggage carts on the way out to meet my uncle who was going to pick us up. And um, my mom turns around and, he, and she says something like, like, Hayaku, Hayaku. And then my sister and I look at her and we're like, what is she saying? Like, we don't understand. And my mom literally, like from the moment we landed, she decided she was not going to use English with us anymore. And just started Good speaking move. in Japanese. And so my sister and I were like, oh, gosh. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and then we went to a Japanese high school and mm-hmm. then lived in a very domestic um, Tokyo neighborhood. And so we were like, how was your accent? Were you, could, you, could you pass for Japanese? When we moved back? No. Oh, but um, after a while, could you, could you get yeah. smooth enough with the speaking? That, that I think so. I mean, it's still hard because there are certain words, especially English words, that no matter how much I try to like manipulate the katakana, which is the mm-hmm. appropriate pronunciation of them, it's really hard for me to not to want to say McDonald's instead of Makudonado yeah. <laughs> or other things. Like, it doesn't get easier with Makudonado. Like Toizasu. <laughs> I always liked that one. Toizaru Asu. Yeah, How did they a, do that with Toizasu? I don't even know what the Toys R Us are. Um, yeah, they're out of gun. business anyway. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, they don't even exist yeah. anymore, right? Um, so yeah, so uh, it really depends. Um, okay. And then also depends how much preparation I've had on the topic. I've had to give speeches in Japanese and then um, done a lot of preparation and people yeah. like, I'll come off and people will be like asking me all these like really difficult questions. I'll be like... One moment. <laughs> um, because I won't really be able to answer it as quickly as they're expecting yeah, because yeah. I prepared a lot for that that speaking opportunity. Um, so what brought you back? So you, uh, 15 to when and then you come back to America or do you stay in Japan after 15? Stayed in Japan after 15. So okay, I'm so going to be 35 this year. Um, and I met you when you were 30 then? Maybe. 31? Yeah, maybe 30. So you 31. were still on that same stretch from when you were 15 years old yeah. when we met up in yeah, Karuizawa? Yeah. Where was it? Uh, well, we, we filmed in Karuizawa, but I think we met up once before that, didn't we? No, we met in that in that cabin, that the, whoever the musician was that owned that you cabin up in the hill. You didn't for us at that hotel when all the girls were dressed in red? Uh, I don't think so. I think that might have been someone else. Oh. All right, now I know how indistinguishable I am from all the other <laughs> cameramen in Tokyo. No! I distinctly remember Karuizawa, but now I'm like wondering, well, who shot for us when we were at the hotel and all the girls dressed in red? That was not me. I was. It was, it was Richard. Okay, yeah. Okay. He's he's yeah he's my doppelganger. This has happened before. I guarantee you it was that cabin. Did we ever figure out who the musician was? We don't have to say it on air. No, Did you know? I have no idea. Okay, it was somebody famous, somebody yeah. with a couple of bucks. Yeah, who owned a very large mansion in the middle of countryside Japan that and we a got whole, to borrow. He had boxes of Black Magic cameras in the basement. Like I could have just walked away with 
I, oh, I didn't notice. He that. was setting up some green screen thing, so he had like two or three brand new black magic cameras. They'd just come out top of the line. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I, I didn't take it, but yeah. I totally could have gotten away yeah. with You're one, like I think. Over. You're like, oh. Yeah. Or at least <laughs> used it for the weekend. I could've I could have cracked yeah. one open and put it back. <laughs> um so what brought you out of Japan then? If if what 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 um, why, what was the signal that it was winding down? So I think I kind of hit like a like a point in my career. Like I had done a lot in Japan. Like I had been lucky enough to get recruited to work for Reuters Television and work like all over Asia and um, as a video journalist. And I was getting like asked to work on projects for like Adidas and Le Cordon Bleu and Fox and a bunch of other really awesome clients. Hold on, um, hold on. Let me just pick up those names you've been dropping. <laughs> Let me just. Uh, you know, make sure all the credentials Anyone? are all lined Who'd up. Who'd you shoot on the red carpet? <laughs> oh my gosh, I won't even start with that list. I've covered the Oscars several times. Um, but um, but yeah, and I just kind of got to a point where I was like, well, what am I going to do next or try to establish something? And I was, I don't know, really frustrated. Um, and then I found, I, my sister had moved to LA and uh, I came to visit her and I just decided to stop by the Reuters office in LA Um Basically, I, I kind of like jumped in to help him to do something the day I stopped by to visit. Mm -hmm. And then um, the next time I came to visit again, the same thing happened. And then I ended up going out to lunch with the bureau chief and being like, uh, or no, the senior producer and asking him, hey, if I came for like a couple days at a time, would I be able to get some like work where I got paid? Yeah, <laughs> Not where I'm just like yeah. helping out because, you know, there's a, a wild f fire fire raging and you guys just need extra hands on deck kind of yeah. thing. And he was like, yeah, you know, actually we're really busy around the Oscars. So I bet you I could give you like a week of work. And for me um, to fly in for a week of work, it made sense compared to flying in for like a day where when they weren't going to fly, uh, cover my flight or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the time I have, I had a, uh, the buddy system for Delta worked very differently. And one of my best friend's dad used to be a pilot for Delta. So I could get really, really great, um, business class tickets and so it was just it just all these these stars were aligning and so I found myself coming I was only supposed to work for five days um, around the same time Cal LA finally Southern California finally started getting flooded with like started getting rain so they had floods I actually mm -hmm. know covering floods for a week then covering the Oscars for two days then covering floods again for a week so I got like two weeks of work in the one week um, so I started flying back and forth for about two years uh, between LA and Japan and then working in LA and Japan. And then when I would come to LA, I would work in LA for as many days as I could and then try to find work elsewhere. So I was actually uh, flying all over the place. Um, and then in my, yeah, so that the first year I was just Airbnb and the second year I actually got like a studio in LA. Mm -hmm. And um, I would uh, change cities on almost a weekly basis. Um, I was trying to like, at one point, I like the map up, you know, the whole like putting the map on the wall and putting the pins in, yep, you know, yep, kind yep. of thing. And I was trying to make it so I did a story in every U.S. state. I was like, I really want to, I know Japan really well. I know how news works there. I know like coverage. Like I really want to know like no America. And I was like, I had these goals where I was going to like move from continent to continent and be like this like super international journalist. Um, yeah. And so I did pretty well. I think I got through about 20 states in the U.S. where I could say I've done a story in each of these 20 states. But um but yeah, so that's kind of how it happened. And during those back and forth times, um, I met my current boyfriend, Anthony. And uh, <laughs> it's so corny, but the first time I met him, I was like, this is the person I want. <laughs> I, I want him. But it was just, I wasn't living here at the time. Like, I didn't really exactly know what was going through my life. I'm a very orderly person. I don't like chaos. Mm -hmm. I like chaos, but I like chaos I can organize. Two for two. Sorry. Um, and then... 
I uh, just how, was like, how did you woo Anthony? How did you land that man? Two-year process. I worked very hard. Uh, Yeah, I literally met him. Um, I knew that this was who I wanted. Like, I knew, like... This is this is my what person. about him? I mean, I know I'm not saying like what on earth about him, but like what, what um, called you to him? Smoldering good looks. Uh, no, okay, you know he, <laughs> he um he's just one of the most like big-hearted people I've ever met. Like I still remember um, my sister and I had gone to Wurskucha in the Arts District um, to have a well. I wasn't drinking at the time, but um, she had a drink and I had a probably a ginger beer and um, one of Anthony's friends came to hit on my sister and then him and I ended up chatting. That was his plan like in his, in his schedule <laughs> hit on Mariko's sister. No, I think he kind of saw her from okay, afar okay. and then wanted to um, to talk to her. Um, anyways, Anthony and I were like wing people at that point, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of stuck talking to each other. Um, he likes X-Men. I like X-Men. He's such like Who is your favorite X-Man star. or woman? Okay. okay. Very easy answer. Um, my favorite yeah, Storm. Um, we could have a whole podcast discussion on the reasons why. And why we would, so but obviously the right answer is Gambit. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, so she, uh, I, I could see you as a Gambit person. I see that. I see yeah. that. Um, but yeah, so we met and I just started chatting with him and I just, we could just talk about anything. He's just, he's super knowledgeable about a lot of different things. So it's really easy to have super engaging conversations with him. Yep. Um, and I am someone who requires a lot of stimulation in terms of, well, um, getting information. Like I obviously journalism, yeah, like yeah. I love information. So um, that was probably great. And then we ended up meeting up the next night and he was so good to my sister and I could see how he treated his friends really well. Like he's very hospitable. Yes. He's an extrovert. He was trying to take care of people. Um, and then the next night he just, him and I met up and we ended up just sitting in a, over at the, I think it's called the corner, corner cafe or something like that. So I could go there and revisit these memories of yes, yours if I yeah. wanted to after the interview. And so we just sat there and we ended up talking for like something like six to eight hours. It's like one of those things where you sit in a diner with someone and it's like 11 p.m. and next thing you know it's like 6 a.m. because yep. it's a 24-hour diner. Yep, yep, yep. No yep, one's yep. trying to make you leave. And I just remember sitting there and listening to him and be like, Sometimes <laughs> with the points, hearts popping exactly. out of your head, <laughs> <And> <laughs> having moments where I was just like not even really listening. Which, just just which, the which, timbre was enough. His exactly. voice, exactly, yeah. and I would just be like, I just want to like oh my talk God. with him for the rest of my life. And the next day, I flew back to Japan, lost contact with him for a year, mm-hmm. but thought about him. Um, it sounds yeah, it sounds crazy. I actually like prayed on my flight home. I'm like, God, I will do so many things right if you just like make this work and just show me the way. <laughs> um, anyways, we lost contact. He found me once on Facebook. We chatted, then we lost contact again. And then a year after we had first met, we ran. I was in LA working. I was mm-hmm. crossing the street. I saw Anthony crossing the other way, and I was like, <gasps> I like flagged him down. Yep, and I was yep. like, Hey, hey. And he's like, oh, hey, um, blank look on his face. I teased him that he didn't know who I was, but, um, and I, obviously I thought it was fate because I was like, yeah, yeah, we yeah. run into each other again. Um, made plans to meet up a few weeks later, hung out. I was like, oh, still the one feeling hasn't changed <laughs> one year later. Um, and I got a job offer to work here a couple of months and then mm-hmm. like, uh, later. And then, uh, when I secured that job, um, to say I jumped him might be a little bit, uh, aggressive sounding, but I think I was like, I like you. I'm ready to date now. <laughs> and he was like, Oh, 
But luckily, he found that romantic. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. we started dating, and we've been together ever since. Oh, okay. <laughs> Couple things on my mind. As we've established in the, on this interview, I perceive you as all business. So to get to know this like lovey-dovey romantic side where you're saying prayers on airplanes, saying goodbye to the crush of your lifetime, <laughs> is a total different side of you that I've I've not I've not met yet. Oh yeah, I'm t- such a mush. I mean, we were at Disneyland yesterday and matching Christmas sweaters. And I had Mickey ears. And are Mickey there photos? Mouse. There are. They can don't we be on a include? Game. Okay, so there's no. We can't release them. There's there. I can. Sh- I can. I'll share one with you. I would like to include one have. in the feed somewhere <laughs> for the the video. It's like that yeah. level. Um, but yeah. So, um, but I will say like. I mean, my relationship is an example of like anything else in my life. Like I am so big into timing, serendipity, mm-hmm. um, efficiency. Like you know, even like I. The romantic in me obviously was like, we've met, this is perfect, and we'll just start and live happily ever after. And then the practical part of me, plus the person who wants their career to thrive, is like, what are you doing with your life right now? Does this really make sense? If you started dating today, like, how would that work? <laughs> like, Was he going to school already then? Or no, he's just still getting working as a okay. cook, yeah. He okay. didn't start going to school until after we started dating. Um, the other thought that was on my mind, and I want to get through it so we can get back to you, is that Swinky was the one who initiated our romantic uh, canoodling. Oh, your wife, yes. yes. So you're you you're in good company, and I think she'll <laughs> she'll enjoy hearing that story of, of you kicking things off. So the lesson there is, women go after that man. <laughs> yes. Because the I think the lesson is the best of us are are shy too. <laughs> We're waiting. We're hoping somebody else will say something. Well, so, Swinky's a strong woman, so I she think she is. I think um, sometimes with strong women, I don't want to like, like, I guess, yeah, I feel like I'm a strong woman. So um, a lot of people don't think to assume, like the Anthony will say, like, you know, you just seem like you were working really hard. You know, you were so much like I liked you, but like you travel a yeah, lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. you got a like, lot going on already and I'm not <laughs> here to get in the way of that. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I want to support you. And I feel like me supporting you is by me like taking you out when you're in town or yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. sending like a great, like positive message, which is great. But I was like, no, I want all the support yeah. from you <laughs> <laughs> and I will fit you into my life accordingly. Oh my God, listen to you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I definitely aggressively per- pursue my goals. <laughs> so then what, what brought you to the little Tokyo service center? Is that after you, is, is it, you've decided to be closer to Anthony or is it LA it com- or combination of a lot of things. So when I moved to the U S I was working for a Japanese broadcaster, um, as a international news producer, working with a reporter and a camera woman. And we covered like central South America and the West coast of North America. Um, and because it was breaking news for, Japanese news channel, it, we would like fly to different places all the time. Like it'd be like the president of Columbia has won a Nobel Peace Prize, and then we fly on the first flight there to mm-hmm. do a. Um, we call them. It's called a a stand up um, yep. for news. So basically, it's the reporter who's like live reporting in front of like you know the Parliament Building or the Ministry or whatever the significant building or the fire and then like being like we're now live from you know Bogota, Colombia where the president obviously this would be in Japanese where the president of Colombia has just won um, the Nobel Peace Prize and and then it'll be like analysts 
you know, back to you in the studio and the analysts talking about oh, it, yeah, what it yeah. means, and then us like chasing down people to do interviews with all week. But so that was what a job I had, um, which is exciting and great. But I had I not just done like eight years of the same thing in Japan and, you know, being called all kinds of hours to cover small earthquakes and, you know, political scandals and whatnot, um, it probably would have been really exciting. So it was cool. I got. To, I was here right before the presidential election, which I think kind of broke me. Um, the 2016. <laughs> okay. So I was following around um, Trump, Sanders, and Clinton all over the U.S. for a while, um, and then I was like, covering wildfires and all other stuff. So I was like, traveling like. I at actually least. haven't checked. How did that election end? <laughs> um, I'm. I'm. I feel like that's like. To I be feel determined. like that sound effect was the answer <laughs> to how it ended. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's still like ongoing. Like I feel like that election has never ended. Like normally someone is elected and there's like a little bit of like commotion and the swearing in and you know the news cycle is like you know busy for a second and then we all go back to caring about like the award ceremonies and yeah, Kardashians yeah. and you know. But it has the been like red alert. And, and that was what was exhausting. It was like it was really exhausting to. Um, so it was a combination of a couple of things. It was one is I was traveling an insane amount, like at least yeah. two weeks a month, all over the U.S. and Central South America. And the other thing was um, every time I came up with a really good a story I felt passionate about or a story that my team felt passionate about, you know, the president would tweet something, which then I would have to translate into Japanese, and we'd have to figure out how to build a story around some tweet, because Japan was, Japan is a, Japan is a very news-heavy country, like a mm -hmm. lot of programming is devoted to news and the analysis of news, um, and international news in general, which I think is a big difference between Japan and the United States, is Japan, uh, there's a lot spent on, on international news coverage. Um, they're very curious about how the, what the rest of the world is doing, and yeah. also how the rest of the world perceives them. <laughs> so... Um, I, I got like frustrated. It's like, how many times do I want to cancel a story that I think is important about, you know, the fact that, let's say, um, like something like 34% of uh, Koreans in the United States are undocumented, and yet we never discuss them as like being DACA recipients. And like, this is a story that like I was like pushing and like saying, yeah, like, yeah, hey, yeah. let's do a story about this, or let's do a story about that, or let's just do a fun story about how like, like mermaid training is now like super popular on the West Coast where people are actually like, sticking fins on themselves and swimming around as mermaids in pools and oceans. And this is like a hobby, you know? Um, and other things that were like fascinating to me, yeah. but we like regularly had to like, we would set the stories up and we'd have to cancel them because our team was so small because we'd have to cover something doing with the uh, White House. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. it was very frustrating because I had felt like until then, um, I had been very blessed to kind of do the kind of journalism that a lot of journalists like kind of hope to do yeah. and work on a lot of like amazing stories. And, and then it was just like, <laughs> just felt like I was just, just becoming like this, this, I don't know, um, propaganda machine <laughs> yep, yep, um, yep, yep, in yep. a lot of ways. Actually, actually, actually propaganda machine is probably not the right way to say it. Um, I felt like I was really becoming... Well, you're you getting know, sucked into their propaganda machine. Yeah. And it's like a single tweet from them requires extensive work to establish the context, to translate, to yeah. explain how it all fits in, knowing that a lot of it doesn't entirely fit in because the context like inside our president's brain changes so frequently to yeah. whatever he wants it yeah. to be yeah. that there often is no context. Like yeah. a lot of it has to be imagined and superimposed on right. it. I can understand how that work would be incredibly <laughs> exhausting. It was just frustrating. And then every single, like I, I had covered 
stories under other presidencies or other mm-hmm. world leaders. And I had never been in a situation. I mean, it's not like my career is ridiculously long. It's only it's like a decade, but I had never been in a situation where every single story, we were always wondering, what does the president think about this? And I'd be like, we didn't care like what Obama or Abe or, you know, Koizumi thought about every single issue we discussed before. Yes. Like yes. we never put that much emphasis on getting the input or opinion or views of our leader on even like the tiniest stories. And now it's like every story has to include him, which I think is an oversaturation of one person's political views, no matter what position they're in. And that was the other reason I was like, not just frustrated, but like angry. Like I think angry is probably appropriate way. And I am. So I was just like, I'm going to go back to freelancing. Like I can Mm -hmm. make more money doing that. I finally feel like I've made enough connections to the U S to do that. And then around the same time, um, a friend of mine, Kathy Pham, who used to work at Opods as a community manager has since left, um, introduced me to a job opening at little Tokyo service center. I went there. I met up with my current supervisor, Tak Suzuki, who, um, is like this wonderful human being. Who's like a director of community economic development. He had such this amazing like macro view of how um, communities, cities, city planning happens. Like I was like, wow, I have a lot to learn from this person. Plus, he's like a really open, beautiful personality. Um, and then also, they told me that I could flex my time, and I was like, hmm, triple win, <laughs> done and done. <laughs> and so, after um, going back and forth a little bit about what the scope of work would be um, and what kind of flexibility I would have to accomplish my work and whether I could still freelance on the side, I agreed to take the position at the Little Tokyo Service Center as their small business counselor, working with Japanese and Japanese American um, entrepreneurs, both of Japanese and Japanese American descent or people who uh, have businesses in Mm -hmm. those communities, um, or who are peripheral to those communities. And, uh, and that leads us into the (laughs) mini series that is just starting today with this interview. Yes. Yes. Very well played. (laughs) I was trying to transition you there to cut down your editing process. That was a beautiful transition. Um, First, one quick thought before Before we get off our current president, the thing, a lot was revealed in the midterms where there was a slight shift to blue in the House and Mm -hmm. the Senate stayed red. Um, It made me rethink the last two years. Yeah. And not much, if any, meaningful legislation got through. I think they passed the budget last year or whatever it was. California props were a mess. It was like so frightening (laughs) to look at that. You're like, oh. Then there were two Supreme Court justices appointed. Yeah. Other than, like, even including that, this has been a largely uneventful presidency that's been incredibly loud. Yeah. Incredibly loud. And when you look at, like, any time that there's a shift from the Republican president to the Democrat, the House or the Senate might shift a little bit to the opposite side of what the president is at the midterms. And then they usually get a second term. But we might not see a second term, but we might see a second term with this guy. When you look at the macro... It's not that explosively different from a, a normal presidency. Yeah. So I wonder how many calories did we waste on all the noise? And is there a way to restructure strategies moving forward to uh, turn down the volume inside our own heads and hearts and focus on uh, the the incredible mediocrity of this whole yeah, administration? Yeah, no, you know, I think one thing that I think um, has been my experience is this. So one of the things that I was looking at when um, I started... Well, I took that job, and then when I was starting living in America, and I found myself covering a lot of California politics and a lot of um, national issues, and also 
where the intersections between the United States and Mexico, the United States and Colombia, and the United States and Venezuela, all these things were. Um, I just found myself like being exhausted of at the, being at this macro view of things, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to go local. I never ex- expected yes. I would go this hyper local. You are <laughs> like I went from like one extreme to another. Local. <laughs> I went from one extreme to another, but. Um, so actually I've been, uh, so I started freelancing for like places like KCT mm-hmm. or like start digital startups that were really focusing on like Las Vegas uh, news or LA news or San Francisco news. And I think that it behooves everyone to just, um, I don't want to say ignore national politics, but it's really hard because national politics requires so much money to have influence and also to have so much time other, or you have the time, like you'd be the person who's like ready to like spend every waking minute yeah, yeah, devoted yeah. to, you know, um, you know, uh, canvassing, speaking, you know, you have to have some kind of like stable income where I don't know where it's going to come from for you to have spent all your time doing that, yep, but it's yep. really hard. And so I think that one thing I've really found a lot of value in is kind of going back to what I said earlier about how we can all be, um, an investor in someone else's dream with just a dollar or even a minute of your time. Yes. And I think it's just a lifestyle change we have to make. I think we have to make the decision that I'm going to read my local paper or read the local downtown. You can go super local. You can just stick to the neighborhood you live in. I live in downtown, so I try to read a lot of downtown news, what's happening. I mean, downtown is changing so rapidly. That alone is hard to keep up with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's just something that we can do. We can make a point to support our local businesses, to support our local papers, to support our local news stations. I do consulting for... Um, a collaborative of six uh, nonprofit local radios, combination radio news and television across California right now. And it's really interesting to see how these um, six different organizations are collaborating to figure out how to use the issues that are happening in Sacramento, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Oakland, but homelessness or mm-hmm. housing crisis um, and then talk about it from each of their city's perspective but then amplify the issue by cross-promoting one another's articles in a way that's cohesive across the entire state because these are not issues that are limited to just your yes. neighborhood. So I think trying to find ways where you're concentrating very hard your time and energy and resources into a local issue but then collaborating with other people who have similar local issues and yes. values and other areas of the city, the country, the nation, the world, and amplifying that yes, stuff. Yes. I think we have, instead of working from big to small, we need to work from small to big. <laughs> Here's the thing. You remember six months ago when I was uh, poo-pooing the idea of local politics to you? Like there was some speech or something and I was like, is that really, is that really where we need to be thinking? <laughs> The more time I spend like watching the people in your orbit, the more I'm convinced that uh, there is incredible value. <laughs> yes! <laughs> you hear that, me. Alison De La Cruz? If you're out there, you have changed one mind. <laughs> it's a win. We got one. <laughs> yes, I, I'm going to say Where's on Where's the clapping own? sound? Don't you have a clapping oh, um, here, uh, here. sound effect? Crickets chirping pew. Wait, I thought that was going to be cricket. Sorry, Swinky, that's not it. Uh, What have we got? Um, There we go. That's the sound of when I change my opinion. You you saw the Matrix. You were like, oh my gosh. And it was, 
uh, it was it was uh, Tracy's event that softened my heart. I was like, eh, okay, maybe there's value in all this. <laughs> maybe because it yeah. is the Tracys, both of them. Are, yeah. Oh, I just I was just like, oh, I love both of you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yes, yes, I am. I am seeing it more and more from your perspective. But you can understand from the outside, it's like really oh, is this? God, a, I worked at like, macro level for a long time. Yeah. I worked for corporations. I worked for Reuters, which is like as macro as you get in the news world. Yeah, like I yeah. used to be such a. Ch- I went, yeah, I had a pretty big chip on my shoulder in terms of, oh, local news, how cute. Like, I'm flying to Columbia today, you know? Did Um, a cat run up a tree? Is that what you're covering for the 7 o'clock news? Exactly, exactly. And then, like, now that I'm working, I'm like, oh, my God, this is hard. Like, what they're doing is so hard. What they're doing is so much energy. What they're doing is so important. And what they're doing can actually make a change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I never realized until I started working in small business. This is, like, a perfect example of this. Until I started working in small business assistance, I did not realize the amount of energy that's required to even just get one parking spot on the street. Like, so when cities are like rezoning or changing road oh, plans yeah, yeah, yeah. and whatnot, yeah. they'll be like, oh, we're going to put in a bike lane on this side of the street and they'll put the bike lane in and get rid of all of the curbside parking. Yep, and they'll yep, be yep. like, there's a parking lot over there. And the businesses on the street, they'll have a fit because they'll be like, oh my God, eight parking spots. That's so important to us, those eight parking yeah, spots. Yeah, not yeah. Just and high turnover the, parking spots. Like most of those people are going to be there an hour or less. Also loading. Like yep. when they're like, we have like stuff that has to go in and out. Oh our, yeah, this is where the trucks bring <laughs> our deliveries every day. <laughs> and it's just You like, want them to park over it at the lot too. And without like, you know, um, people at the local level, like working with either city planners or people like, you know, petitioning or people going to neighborhood council meetings and being like, hey, this is, and this people at the macro level have no idea because all they're thinking is, oh, you have another parking lot over there where your customers can park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had, um, it's a really sad story, but one of my, uh, one of the businesses I worked at, she had a nail salon on First Street. Um, the building behind her got sold and to a developer who's currently building like, a, I don't know, eight, eight story or nine story, like market rate housing monstrosity behind it. Um, there used to be parking right behind her building that's gone now. And literally just because now her clients would have to like cross the street and use the parking across the street and she's a nail salon, she had a drop in like like something like 30 to 40% of her business mm-hmm. just off of the fact because people who get, you know, beauty salons, they're like, I want to get in, get out. I want to walk out the yep, door, get yep, right into yep, my yep, car yep, and yep, go yep. back home. Yeah, Especially if yeah. my, I got like a pedicure. No, I'm not going to hang out. Yeah. I'm going to get this done exactly. and then go somewhere else to meet my friends and show off my new nails exactly. or whatever it is. Yeah. Or if they especially got a pedicure, like I don't want to walk in flip flops or whatever across yep, the yep, street, yep, yep, even yep. though in California, the weather's beautiful. Um, so it's not like you know, they're in Buffalo where they're like, it's not really going to work to walk in flip flops across the street. But like just something as simple as that yep. has such a huge effect. And that's like a really specific example I can give, but I can give like tons of examples like that. Like the other places they'll be like, oh yeah, when this development went up, um, I'll give you another really quick example, just so this doesn't sound like it's an anecdote. It's natural. Like, yes, anecdotal <laughs> evidence is not admissible in a court of law, Mariko. Um, so another example is um, the uh, there's a florist shop over in Boyle Heights who uh, a low-income housing project um, went up across them. Great. We need more low-income housing. That's wonderful. The thing is that because the, the building, and this is LA, it had a limit to how many parking spots each apartment unit could get. And because mm-hmm. it's low-income housing, they're not going to like charge for all these extra 
like uh, spaces like another building would um, or that the people in the building could afford to pay like $300 for another space. So it was like one apartment, one parking spot, that's mm-hmm. it. But most families will have two, three cars in the family, right? Yeah. The f- husband and the wife will each have their own vehicle if they're multi-generation, someone else. So what ended up happening is these families moved into the low-income housing and then they started using all the street parking around the low-income housing for like a four-block radius for yes. their second and third vehicles, which suddenly meant that these businesses nearby, the parking that they were used to having available for their businesses is no longer available because people are parking like around the clock. How much time a day do you spend <laughs> thinking about parking? Is this like you walk outside I, and you just see the... the I look at the, the space so differently now. <laughs> no. like I look at space differently now. You know, yeah. like space is a privilege. And in coming from Tokyo, where public transportation is so simple and coming to LA where it's so not simple, it's getting better. And I say that as someone who does not own a car and uses public transportation exclusively, Mm -hmm. I am just like, wow, like this is something that people's, people's lives revolve around traffic patterns in Los Angeles. That is why I was here at six in the morning. I was like, I don't want the eight o'clock traffic if we're meeting at 845. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's just something that, um, you know, you don't necessarily think about when you're at the the national or international level because yes. you don't know how each person's micro economy works. Yeah, you don't yeah. know what the issues are for that specific neighborhood or ethnic enclave or um, region of the country, and that's why it's like hard to rely. I think national publications or national um, papers to really dissect. Uh, local politics when they live in D.C. and they're trying to talk about something happening in like Akron, Ohio. It's yeah, like, no, yeah. that's you don't very know. inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. When you yeah. when you step out this door, mm-hmm. do you look around and think, I run these streets? <laughs> No, I for this three-block area, do you feel like? Do so you feel like you're you, gonna you're gonna meet Kristen Fukushima? I will I will say that she runs these streets. Okay, I I because uh, that's the only her... reason I'm here is to figure out who runs these streets because <laughs> I, I want to get them on a rap track. With I, me. I, I feel like um, that would be like Mike Murase, mm-hmm. Kristen Fukushima, Brian Quito. I think they all have the privilege of being able to say they run these streets. I feel like I am like the street team. Okay, <laughs> uh, putting up the posters. Um, that's more more my my uh, support my my position within the community but yeah I would say you can tell Kristen Fukushima that I say that she runs these okay. streets <laughs> so what would you say is like the thread you you booked I think every interview in this series I did what is the common thread between all the people that you booked on this interview and you like how do they all move through you in this world oh gosh um, well to say that they all move through me feels like makes me sound like I'm at the center of a, a universe how do they all move with you how do they <laughs> I feel like I bump into them yeah um, How do you so, bump? What 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 do you bump with your elbow, your knee, your backpack? <laughs> I think I, I like to bump fists. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, the way that I have kind of um, had these uh, intersections with all these different people because I think the people that we've booked for your for this series um, is a combination of not just historians of the neighborhood, like actual people who have written books mm-hmm. <laughs> on the neighborhood. Mike Morase, who you'll interview, he's actually written a, a, or actually an excellent book about Little Tokyo. Um, James Choi, who's a business owner in the neighborhood. Chris Fukushima, who serves as the head of the community council for the neighborhood. Um, people, Should we get some pump-up music? Like this is yeah, a trailer? Like, yeah. All right, start <laughs> Coming that, soon. <laughs> start that list again. You have 30 seconds to name who they are and what's special about them. Go. Okay. 
So we got Mike Murase, who is a historian of Little Tokyo and has published numerous articles and books on the neighborhood. James Choi, the owner of Cafe Dulce. We also have Sho Watanabe, who will be opening up his first pop up in Little Tokyo in January. And I cannot forget that we also have Kristen Fukushima. Who runs these streets, who yo? Who runs these streets that will be on this podcast series and many others that I'm excited for you all to listen to. Did I, did I not make the 30 seconds? There we go. <laughs> Nailed it. That was beautiful. That was art. Uh, um, you do the first poll. We're moving on to the fish bowl now. There's yes. no way to top that. <laughs> All right. I will not. I don't want to look. Oh, and when you're done answering the question, if you ever not want to answer, all you have to do is ring again and we pull the next thing. You ring the ding awesome. and then you pull the thing. That's how. That's what we say on the show. Oh, what person, living or not, would you want to spend the day with and why? I know the exact answer to this question. So I would like to spend the day with my mom, but... Is she living? She is living. Okay, She's living. Okay. She's in Japan. But I would like to spend the day with my mom at her, at the age she was... At my age now. Hold on. Let me see this. Uh, No, I am not seeing that time travel is allowed on this particular question. What? If it doesn't say it's not allowed, I... All right. I'll allow it because I'm a a good host. (laughs) Why? Why? Just to feel like what... Just to understand what she was thinking about when you... When she was where you are now in time? Yeah, I think that. I think also, like, um, the more that I'm doing, like, going through my career and my mm-hmm. life, and the more I'm kind of like having these flashbacks to things my mom told me as a kid. The, mm-hmm. Like, I always thought my mom and I weren't very much alike. Um, but as I'm getting older, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of parallels in my life yep. to my mom's yep. life yep. the yep. older yep. I get. And now I'm like, oh, man, I wonder what she was doing right now or five years ago or when she moved to the US or when she started her career and I kind of want to see that version of my yeah, mom. One yeah. thing that I always tell people and I don't know if this is true of like all mixed kids but I've definitely felt for myself that um, when I lived in the United States and my, my parents are divorced now but when my parents were together my mom mostly spoke English with us because our dad doesn't speak uh, Japanese and mm-hmm. um, so I knew my mom but I always felt like I didn't really know my mom because you know she speaks English fluently but I mean, she also the had a lot person, of people change when they switch yes. from English to Japanese. You get access to a different, a very different personality. And, and also, um, the kind of person she had to culture herself to be, to live in yep. Buffalo compared yep. to Tokyo, which yep. is also a whole different thing. Um, and then when I moved to Japan and I started learning Japanese and I started living in my mom's hometown and living in the streets that she grew up yep, in. Yep, understanding her on her terms, exactly. not on Buffalo's and terms. And then also for the things that she was able to help me with that she could never help me with in Buffalo because most of the time it's me helping. This is a common for immigrants' kids, right? Where you're yeah, kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. leading your parents on their yep. path towards assimilation yep, um, yep, 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 rather yep. than the parents being able to help the kids. And it was like, I always uh, say this to my sister who unfortunately hasn't had the same experience because my sister has mostly lived in the United States, but it's like, she's a different human being. Like it's a completely different person that yeah. we've met. Like yeah. A hundred percent different person. I, I, I don't even, those two people are completely different individuals. <laughs> like they yeah. might as well, you know, it might as well be twins separated at birth <laughs> who grew up in different environments. Um, and so I would love to meet my mom at that age um, and experience her at that time. Now that I've like know what different person she is, just in two different countries and two different languages. Excellent. Yeah. Very nice answer. Thanks. My turn. What are we gonna go? I'm going for something colorful. 
And this one is from uh, the episode that will come out tomorrow. Uh, Kate Faust is Kiss from a Rose, the best song of all time. Oh, Seal? Yes. <laughs> so. It's, she I, makes us a, a, a compelling case in that question okay, for it. So I'm going to have to listen to this because Kiss, so Seal is Anthony's favorite um, musician of like all time. Okay. So I actually have like a really timely story for this. Um, so for. Uh, Anthony, so for our anniversary um, in July, I got we tickets have story, to go. Do you want story music? Hold oh, on. here we go. Yeah. I'm going to tell a story. So a couple months ago, I discovered the extent to which my boyfriend Anthony was truly a fan of Seal, like mm-hmm. fangirl fan of Seal or fanboy, I guess. And um, so I decided to kind of keep track of when Seal was performing where, and I got that alert being like, Seal will be performing in Los Angeles at the Hollywood Bowl. Mm-hmm. So I bought those tickets. We went to the show, had amazing seats. <laughs> when Seal got to the last song, Anthony looks at me. He's like, is it okay if I go down to the stage? I was like, <laughs> okay. And dressed in like his like three-piece suit, like he like runs at like the middle of summer. And he like, and I, and he just like doesn't come back. <laughs> like, I'm like, where did he go? And he's literally as close as he could possibly get to the stage without like pissing off security. Uh-huh. So he can be as close. We had pretty good seats. I mean, Hollywood Bowl is not cheap to get any closer than yeah, we were, yeah, yeah. but, um, yeah. So I'm going to have to say, I feel like you're dodging the question. The, I feel like you're talking around the issue the, at hand here. The experience of seeing my partner's reaction to seal saying kiss Lowe's live in person mm-hmm. may make it the greatest song of all time. That's a hard yes here on the fishbowl <laughs> for money. Go. Um, your turn. Yes. <laughs> Ooh, another colorful one. Yes. What have you got? When did you become confident in yourself and your talents? Oh my gosh, does anyone ever truly become confident in their self and their talents? Confident or competent? Confident. Confident, okay. Um, when did you? You don't, Do you still feel shaky about what you're contributing to? to imposter syndrome at every turn. And are corner. you kidding? Um, what a curse to live with. That must suck for you. <laughs> really? I feel like doesn't everyone struggle with this? No, just me. Uh, sometimes, I mean, like when I know I'm in my element, I'm fine. And there are plenty of times when I know I'm not in my mm-hmm. element. Like if I'm at a dinner party trying to be casual, I know yeah. I'm not killing it. But <laughs> if I'm in my room transferring records to digital, then yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. <laughs> no imposter syndrome there. Um, yeah, I don't know if I, I have moments when I do, like I have moments where I'm like, yeah, milestone, high five okay. to myself. But, um, I think also like my parents are both really humble people and on top of being humble they're also like very clear that we don't like overshare our achievements with others kind of thing so even the other day I was like writing um uh I was writing a message that was supposed to be basically a discussion of like the culmination of my what I've accomplished in like the last eight months or so um and it was really hard for me to write it without feeling I was being braggy and I I asked was this for anyone to see or was it just a review for you okay Um, okay. and so and then I was like uh but it was like a third party who doesn't know anything about it but is also supporting funding for the project so I was like 
I feel like I have to be really detailed, but the more I write the detail, because I've done a lot, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, it's, you know, impressive how much I've done that it's like... Uh, but seeing it in black and white, could you could you uh, ease up on yourself and just enjoy the experience of, of having a list just, of things you did? I think it's just hard whenever you write in the first person. You always want to be like, well, because you want to be like, yeah, I think it's... You'd be like, yeah, I did all these things, but you also want to be like, well, all these other people, they also worked on all these things yeah. too, and you want to like, give them credit. But then you're also, like, if I'm very honest with myself, but they also wouldn't have done this if I hadn't been spearheading the project. So, like, um, like I, I always say, like, I'm always concerned about the sustainability of some of the programs that I start because I really want them to continue, but I also want to, like, go work on my next yes, thing. Yes, yes, and yes, I yes. always wonder, and this is something that I've, I've talked about with some people who are very successful with startups who, you know, do like multiple startups and are constantly starting new businesses where they're like trying to build it, but they're like, great idea. Next thing I want to build, like, and they hand it over and sometimes the thing just dies without them. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, I think one thing that I was discussing with someone one time is, you know, the difference between like Facebook and Apple, how Apple is able to survive without Steve Jobs because they've built themselves as a brand of Apple, not necessarily revolving around like the Steve, they play to the legacy of Steve Jobs all the time. Yeah. But yeah. it's not like, I mean, Apple's, you know, with the, when the wealth, like how much money they make is like ridiculous. Obviously they're doing well. Oh, they're well. back under a trillion. They dropped. Uh, Their value fell. They're not, they're not worth a cool trill anymore. Okay. Well, I'm sure they'll, they'll pick right back up when their, uh, uh, their um, I, ori- Apple Originals drops in, uh, what is it, next year? I Apple have a Original theory. Starts. I have a theory that, uh, that Facebook would do better without Zuckerberg. Without Zuckerberg. So that's the that's always the comparison. Apple versus Facebook. But the fact that Facebook is very tied into a key spokesperson with Zuckerberg, if Zuckerberg didn't exist or he passed or something, you know, big happened, would that brand be able to stand on its own without the amount of influence? I think it would do better. I think he's getting in the way of it. I don't think it could exist without him, obviously. Like there's no way it comes to be what it is now mm-hmm. without him. But I think he's so uh, so focused on what made it a hit mm. that he's just playing the same record at every retirement home at this point. And yeah. um, I, I wonder, I wonder how involved he is in Instagram, which mm-hmm. they own, but I don't, I, I don't think he micromanages like he micromanages Facebook. Right. right. And we see Instagram having the right. growth that Facebook can't for whatever reason. Yeah, I think I look at like project management, startups, small business, corporations, I think I look at them all kind of um, in the same way, but obviously parallel in mm-hmm. the fact that I was thinking about what's their succession plan and also like, um, will they be able to survive? Are they sustainable without certain key persons? I think it's kind of like how when you like, like supposedly when you raise kids, right? The best sign is that your kids are fine once they leave yes. the nest and yeah, they yeah, yeah, go yeah. out and make the world a better place without you kind of like making, like helping them pick them up when they fall and all that other kind of stuff. Um, my parents were really big on like, once you leave the house, you are on your own. We will continue to support you for as long as you stay at the house. But the second mm-hmm. you leave, like my, both my parents moved out of their homes when they were like 17 or something. They both like became independent, started yep. working, support their own families. And so they had the same expectations of their own kids. Um, and I think I also look at everything else the same way. And I think sometimes that's what I made, made me not confident in my um, leadership skills or my abilities to like be successful at what I am because I'm like, have I... I've created great things, but have I done also the thing that's most important is make them sustainable for 
them to continue even after I'm not with that organization yeah, or yeah. that project because creating an awesome project or creating a great concept is important, but is it sustainable? And that's yeah. always my concern is, are is this sustainable and for how long? And what do we need to make it sustainable? Um, yeah, and that's always what I worry about. <laughs> that's a big question. I know. Disguised as a little one. I know. So scary. It just I just want to avoid saying that I'm not confident. <laughs> I'm gonna skip that one. When was the last time someone told you that they love you? Oh yesterday. <laughs> last night. I would say this morning, okay. but Anthony wasn't awake when I got up. <laughs> Should we get him on the line? We can plug your phone into the recorder and I know and get if an our, on air I love our, you. If our uh, if our um my house actually hold on a second we are doing this is the first time in the history of hollywood fishbowl fishbowl that we have done a call on air there you can hear it ringing i know oh my god this is insane i know i don't know if you'll hear it though come on anthony come on anthony pick up our apartment doesn't have very good reception please leave your message for anthony anthony Hi, babe. I love you. Hi. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let me off like that. Savage. I love you, too. All right. We're going to leave that one hooked up to your phone in case he calls back. We okay. do want to get him on the episode for no reason other than the card said, when was the last time you said I love you? Your turn to pick one. All right. What was the most annoying thing you encountered on set <laughs> oh oh wow i think this is gonna go right back to kurizawa <laughs> um and it might have so been me having fun, low blood sugar <laughs> fun fact jesse and i worked on a reality television show in japan with and a couple of ground rules if i ding the bell then the answer is cut off and <laughs> um, no going back and uh that's actually how we met um that was a very interesting experience for me. Um, I think the most annoying thing that I experienced on set for that was a uh, a vagueness of direction and concept for the project, which suddenly put me into a position of not producer, but director. Um which is frustrating because had I known that was what I'm going to do, I would have been happy to do it and mm-hmm. come up with, you know, a storyboard and proof of concept and all that kind of stuff but because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and because I'm, because of the personality I have, I just felt like it was a whole like, you know, half-assed MacGyvering of everything at no, all No, you think that shoot was half-assed in the pre-production? <laughs> um, I think they came with a pretty solid concept. A bunch of girls will go to a place. Yeah, so, um, which is a shame because I think there was, like, potential for certain really cool things on that project, but it was just, you know, a hodgepodge of trying to, of constantly shoehorning different ideas, personalities, sponsors, and yep, stakeholders yep, yep. into a 
somewhat massively funded project, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> like, so that made it even more frustrating. Is like, it's not like we were working for free. Like everyone yeah, was making yeah. some form of money. Yep, yep, yep. Um, yep. We were so all doing we, okay that weekend. Yeah. So like, it's not like we couldn't. Have... And it's not like there wasn't talent there. There were creative, engaged people with oh, skills. Yeah, like definitely. there, there was uh, there was some good pedigree. Yeah, in so, that room. Um, yeah, I was definitely irritated with the uh, lack of um, leadership and direction yes. on that set. Yes. And I got low blood sugar and then got cranky. <laughs> that also happened. We'll do uh, 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 we'll do one more. This looks like a ML question. That stands for Mariko Lockridge, not um, <laughs> Major League. <laughs> Tell us about a small business that you enjoy visiting. Could that be more appropriate oh. for this? Oh man, there are so many. How do I choose? It's like I don't have kids, but this is probably like the equivalent of like, how do yeah, you who's choose your favorite? Between your children. Um, well, I just so you know, as far as that goes, it's me. <laughs> you know, let me let me do it this way. I will say it is my favorite small business is three four FSN three four one FSN. The space that we are currently sitting in. Yes, because over a course of September. It sounds like you're about to cheat on this answer. <laughs> Over a course of five months, I will get to curate about five different entrepreneurs utilizing this space, including oh, okay. um, Jeffrey Ozawa from Tenzo. Hold on, hold on. Here we go. Including, who's who's here at F1? 341 FSN has been able to host entrepreneurs such as Darren Maki of Craft by Maki, Jeffrey Ozawa of Shop Tenzo, Jeffrey Koister. Koister? Koister? I'm not helping you now. <laughs> Hollywood Wishful, and the music's playing. Michelle Hanabusa of Uprising and Sho Watanabe of. He hasn't quite come up with his own name yet. So, of the. Uh, of, of show shop. <laughs> Did you already mention Craft by Maki? Yes. Okay. Kester rhymes with Uncle Fester until he hits sixth grade and then it rhymes Kester. with molester. <laughs> That's a horrible way. It's all right. Well, my well, name, um, the way that a lot of like Americans pronounce my name is Mariko, which, Mariko. you know, unfortunately, that song, Banana Banabo, Frico, Me, My, Mariko, Mariko. Mariko, Mariko. Bobart. That's really tough. <laughs> oh, yeah, it would be Farika. Yeah, so. I'm sorry. It's okay. I feel better. Yours is worse. We- <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this episode of the Hollywood Fishbowl, where you're not welcome anymore. I won't be invited back. This is a, a, a you'll always you're always welcome, and this is the open invitation that I'm giving you right here and now on the record. Is if you ever 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 want to come back to make an announcement, want to jump on for a 10, 15 minute catch up interview, you are warmly welcomed at the Hollywood Fishbowl now and forever. Woo! Let's do some round out music and then get you out of here. Can we do that? Yes. This has been the Hollywood Fishbowl, and I've been your host, Jesse Kester. Is this Mr. Rogers? It is not. It sounds like the Mr. Rogers music. Chosen because it sounds similar, but it is it is not. Kester rhymes with Uncle Fester until <laughs> sixth grade when it rhymes with molester. <laughs> If you liked what you heard, you can find us at www. That's three W's for those who are counting. Dot Hollywoodfishbowl.com. If you're partial to the Insta or the Twitter at HWFishbowl. But it's not about us, it's about the guest. Mariko, Mariko, Bobariko, Banana Fana, 
I'll stop there. Where can people find you? <laughs> um, you can find me in real life, which is what I prefer. <laughs> uh, anywhere around LA County. So, you know, drop me a message on Twitter, Instagram, or um, email at Mariko Lockridge, M-A-R-I-K-O-L-O-C-H-R-I-D-G-E. And uh, say what coffee shop you want to meet up at and I'll be happy to have a real hip conversation with you. And there are so many good ones in the little Tokyo area. Oh yeah, let me name off like five that I love. Uh, Cafe Dulce, Demitas, Bay, (laughs) Chato Tea Room, (laughs) Um, out in Culver City we have Choco Vivo. Um, You forgot Gist. Oh, Gist Cafe. Right around the corner, closed on Mondays. (laughs) Um, Gosh, uh, who else coffee shop do I love? Oh, Tea Master over in the Honda Plaza. Um, Verve Coffee, which is over uh, at 9th and... I'm cutting you off there. Yeah, because I have a lot more. (laughs) Thank you for coming on. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah.